Yeah, so at the moment it's amazing, but concrete is the second most consumed material in our planet, second only to water. It's really alarming. What if we get it right? The climate change is an existential threat. I, sorry, I paused there. I hesitated. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to episode 13 of What If We Get It Right. I'm Tessa Wernink, a social entrepreneur, and I've teamed up with Impossible, home of planet-centric design. Together, we bring you stories about how to build businesses that can move the world in a new direction. Today, I speak with Shimrit Perkel-Finkel, a marine biologist turned social impact entrepreneur. Shimrit is the CEO and co-founder of eConcrete, a company that is creating solutions for man-made and coastal marine infrastructure. Through the use of bio-enhanced concrete, the team creates products that are more durable with a longer lifespan and they help marine ecosystems thrive. So Econcrete is a technology for building robust coastal structures that are fostering marine life. Uh, the core technology is a combination of three elements that work in synergy, the concrete composition, the surface roughness, and the three-dimensional design. Uh, we basically slightly modify the concrete mix design or the recipe of the concrete uh, very lightly to uh, uh, counter some of the negative uh, impacts of concrete on marine life and to allow for the concrete to uh, invite growth of uh, rich and diverse marine ecosystems. Basically, it's a technology platform that can be implemented to any type of marine or coastal concrete uh, structure uh, to, to get that really triple bottom line of uh, structural, ecological, and community uh, in one. With over 20 years of experience in the field of marine biology and ecology, Shimrit is using her expertise in sustainable management and ecological engineering to push businesses, governments, and project developers to start using environmentally sensitive designs for coastal areas. E-Concrete is explicitly putting the planet and living seas at the center of their business. Listen in as Shimrit shows us how we can tackle a huge ecological problem such as concrete, one step at a time, and how exasperating it can be to push a solution that is so obviously the best choice. Good morning, Shimrit. Good morning, Tessa. How are you this morning? Uh, very well, thank you. It's been the first rain here in Tel Aviv, so after months of summer. <laughs> first rain, but you still look like it's summer there. It's uh, definitely turned winter here. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to have you on my uh, podcast. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research around uh, your company, but also concrete in general. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you about this topic. Um, and I wanted to start by um, looking toward the future, because as most uh, social impact entrepreneurs uh, start, they have a vision of what a future could look like. And I was wondering whether you could paint that picture for me. What does the future look like when you see into it? My vision and basically the vision of Econcrete is uh, coastlines that are uh, strong, resilient and teeming with life. Uh, that means that we have uh, a very good synergy uh, between the communities that uh, live at the coastline and the marine communities that inhabit uh, those uh, fragile uh, ecosystems. Um, basically looking into a future where any coastal construction uh, is done, including uh, principles of ecological engineering and uh, ecological considerations 
that are embedded throughout the process of design and construction. Uh, that's our vision, basically. And that vision um, comes from also a love of the sea. Where does it come from? That kind of why why coastlines? Yes. Uh, so I'm I'm very passionate about uh, marine life and the marine environment. I'm a diver. Uh, I've been you know uh, a frequent visitor to the coastline since I was uh, uh, a young kid. I, I always lived five minutes from the beach, and my father took me to the to the Tel Aviv coast uh, every week, if not every day. And I think it's very much uh, inherent for me to uh, to be kind of in tune with uh, with the marine nature. And um, unfortunately, we've also seen quite a lot of damages to the marine environment that are mainly induced by us humans, uh, including processes of coastal development and uh, growing cities and growing ports. Uh, and uh, that was kind of the driver uh, for me and my co-founder, who's also a marine biologist, and uh, we actually met in university, uh, to innovate and to come up with a solution that can be adopted by industries across this kind of field uh, and, and bring that balance back to our coastlines. I'm wondering, as a marine biologist, you love the sea and then you're now into concrete. How, you know, how did, how did that happen? It's exactly that point. Uh, I came from a background of working in academia. I have I've done my um, first, second, third degree, and a postdoc, uh, all focused around designing uh, man-made structures to better mimic natural communities. And uh, I realized, seeing the the magnitude of this uh, industry of coastal marine construction, that in order to make a true change, we have to translate some of that knowledge into applied science that can be adopted easily and cost effectively by the industry. Otherwise, uh, the the future will not look uh, according to our vision. We have to make it very much uh, feasible and easy to adopt. Uh, and then that's really where we made, uh, myself and my co-founder made a, a joint decision to take this concept uh, to a commercial level and to establish a corporate. Uh, we didn't really envision where we're going to go with this, uh, that from our perspective, we're going to be the leaders in the field of, of a new field uh, and, and set new norms for construction, which is where we want to be. But we definitely knew that we want to change the industry. And the first step for us to was to go into a commercial entity. This whole field that you're working in, uh, concrete, could you give some context for my listeners? Like, what are the issues with concrete, not just in like maybe coastal areas, but generally? Yeah, so at the moment, it's amazing. But concrete is the second most consumed material in our planet, second only to water. It's really alarming. <clears throat> the concrete industry... Uh, while it is striving to go uh, greener, uh, is, is at the moment responsible for 7 to 8% of the entire humanity's carbon emissions. Um, and in the, pro the, the problem is kind of twofold because in the process of um, generating the clinker or the cement, uh, the, it's a very much energy intensive uh, process where you have to uh, use very high temperature to produce the clinker. Uh, so you're kind of emitting CO2 at that level. And the chemical process of, of the formation of the cement also releases CO2. So there's a lot of uh, footprint to the concrete industry. And uh, because of, at the moment, about 70% of all of the coastal and marine structures are concrete-based. And on land, of course, it's, it's the number one choice for construction. Uh, 
when you combine that with uh, increased human population, uh, especially along the coastline, about half of the human population is concentrating around the coastline. So we're seeing the magnitude of the problem. And then from, I will zoom in on the biological problem in the marine environment. Uh, the concrete is, is not just your standard uh, sand, cement, aggregate, and water, which is kind of the classic recipe for concrete. In the marine environment, to make it uh, in compliance with the standards and to make it strong enough to endure 30, 50, even 100 years, it has a lot of additives. It has uh, corrosion inhibitors, air entrainers, uh, workability agents. There's a soup of chemicals in the marine concrete. And those kind of clash with marine life. As, as There's many studies that show that concrete, even after 10, sometimes after 20 years, still doesn't accommodate or doesn't act as a surrogate to a natural reef. So the chemical composition is one problem. And also the way that we structure the concrete. We, we Obviously, the engineers specify smooth surfaces and repetitive elements. And uh, those present very little hydrogen heterogeneity and very little habitat value. And uh, th those are the problems we, we tackle with e-concrete. So when you see, when you see that future, like uh, the coastal areas being um, uh, uh, re-alivened, I guess, with the biodiversity, how do you know that you're getting there? How, do you, how are you going to measure that you're actually making an impact? Uh, I think that we can divide it into kind of two levels. At one at one level, we'll see that uh, if we're very successful, there will be new norms and new codes for construction. So, for example, we envision a new code for bioenhancing concrete that could be just specified for the marine environment, and then every project will have to have that. So that, that's kind of the highest level. From an ecological perspective, it means that we will be able to measure, and that's what my company has been doing almost on any installation that we've done, is to measure the biological indices and the environmental impacts. So, for example, having more species, uh, higher biodiversity, higher uh, live cover, uh, more filter feeders that can uh, increase the, the water quality, having more calcifying organisms that on one hand we learn are making the concrete stronger and on the other hand they're also creating a carbon sink. These are things that are very measurable and uh, you can get those measurements across different ecosystems and we'll be able to uh, basically have a network of information uh, in the future of how much ecosystem services we're gaining from those kilometers and kilometers of structures as opposed to what we had until today which is basically the opposite. What were the negative impacts of these structures on the ecosystems? Yeah. And what was that like for you? Like, when was the first time you started like, uh, understanding that the product that you were making was actually uh, doing what it was supposed to do? Like you were making that impact. Can you remember that moment? Uh, yeah, I think that first of all, when we started developing or did the heavy duty uh, R&D process, uh, we had about 20 different concrete mix designs and we've deployed them in the Mediterranean, kind of our home base. And I think as, as, as little as uh, six months later, uh, we saw a really clear signal of some of those uh, concrete mix designs. And we really saw with really with the naked eye that uh, it was much more uh, alive than uh, a regular concrete, which was used as a comparison. And I think that's also when we kind of said the term uh, bringing concrete to life, because it really just, it showed. Uh, and then 
I think it was after Superstorm Sandy hit in the U.S. That's where also we started hearing people talk about <clears throat> resiliency in our coastline and resilient infrastructure. And that immediately connected with what we're trying to do because a natural ecosystem, well, is much more resilient uh, and the biodiverse ecosystem is more resilient to change than uh, a low diverse ecosystem. And these were kind of the core principles for us. So once it started to tap into uh, the language uh, at, at the policy level, um, that's where we started feeling that we're at the right place at the right time. So what I hear you saying is that uh, your impact is both like on your product level, like really being able to see that, um, but also on a more macro level of like looking at standards and policy. It sounds like that's really necessary as well, because we, the amount of kilometers of coastline is, is huge. And, and I, re I read something about concrete. It's amazing um, material to build with, but you can't actually get rid of it or reuse it, right? It's just you can just uh, take it down to rubble. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they are looking at circular economy with concrete, uh, and it is possible to break it down and to use ground concrete, but the, the application is very limited. I don't think the standards for uh, either terrestrial and definitely not marine uh, allows for the use of recycled concrete. But at the moment, uh, you, you can't really have full circularity. Uh, you might be able to get some work with uh, recycled sand and aggregate. Um, but uh, our, our vision is a bit different, as I mentioned. So we wouldn't want to have that broken down. We want that concrete to last and last and last and be a part of the ecosystem and be a diverse ecosystem that would give back to nature. I'm interested in this vastness of the problem, like the focused nature of your solution. How are you going to expand this or scale this or make sure that it like, grows? So that, that's been a learning curve because the, the science bit was kind of the easiest one for us. And even doing the proof of concept and the validation and writing scientific papers to back the science. So once the science worked uh, and we even patented the technology, um, we knew that it has to be everywhere. It doesn't make sense for uh, people to build in the future without taking nature into consideration. It's not sustainable and it's, it's, it's just not going to be a, a way for for humanity to uh, live onwards, and that that's a given. Once people understand that uh, any project should have these considerations, for, from my perspective, by law, I mean, otherwise it it will be a choice, and then people would say, yeah, we did a little bit of ecological engineering, we did some nice decoration with ecological features in that part of the project, and kind of tick that off. No, that it has to be deeper. And it has to make sense. And that's where we want to see the impact and we'll do whatever is needed. Uh, as a company, first of all, we need to make sure that the product is viable and scalable from uh, a production perspective. And uh, happy to say that we designed it to be that way. So it's basically a technology platform that can be applied anywhere with a very simple system. That, that was crucial for us. In the future, I even see us you know, manufacturing the core component. Like we don't need to produce the molds in Israel and send them. They can be manufactured according to blueprints. So we're going to try and make that as, you know, as sustainable as possible and as scalable as possible. And the other thing is to work with partnerships. That's where we're at now. So we are going to partner with the big cement companies. 
uh, and with the landscape architects and with the engineering firms and work with the port authorities. We're already doing that in, in Rotterdam, for example, in San Diego, in Monaco, in Hamburg. Uh, so the idea is to, to do a lot of outreach and education about the whole concept and obviously to uh, increase the span of our uh, production capacity and distribution capacity. Uh, hopefully, we'll also have competition. Uh, I know nobody can be alone in this space, and we're already seeing some uh, emerging technologies that are, are getting close to uh, what we're doing, and I think that's, that's great. Uh, it means we're in a good direction, and it means that we could make this a global thing, and that's our, that's our scope. If you say you're a company, you've been around for like a while, can you say from a moment of startup to scale up to established company, where do you think you are on that, uh, on that trajectory? So we incorporated in 2012. And as I mentioned, the validation process was quite long. We actually had to wait for corals and marine life to grow on the concrete, which takes time. Uh, so we really started uh, commercializing, I think around 20, 2016, um, even though we had active installations even before. Uh, the company today, I would say it's a scale-up. Uh, we are now shifting from uh, demonstration projects to uh, full-pledged uh, projects, I think. Uh, again, you talked about challenges. In our industry, a project life cycle is between two to four years quite easily because we have to go in at the design phase. When somebody is dreaming about the waterfront, and it, we have to kind of be there in the process of design until the specifications of the project goes to a bid and include these features. So as a company, it's a challenge to uh, live through that, endure that life cycle and go to the phase where we're now, which is finding partnerships to license the technology onwards. Uh, we're just under 20 people and we're hoping to keep a very condensed team. We don't envision, you know, hundreds of offices and thousands of people uh, working for us. I think that partnerships can do that much more effectively. And uh, that, that's our vision. So uh, looking forward to 2021 being kind of a turning point for us with some big projects going into construction. One of the focus points of our series is how the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals can guide business. In 2018, Shimrit was one of five women entrepreneurs to win the We Empower UN SDG Challenge a first-of-its-kind global business competition for female entrepreneurs advancing the SDGs. Shimrit explains what the goals mean to her and how they feature in her work. I think that having the sustainable development goals as kind of a beacon for where we need to go is, is excellent. And I'm happy to say that we're seeing more and more companies align and actually commit to taking action because it has to be more than just goals and more than just you know slogans. That That's what we're trying to do. We are literally uh, bringing concrete action to make those uh, goals achieved. And uh, we work at multiple levels. Uh, inherently, SDG uh, 14, Life Below Water, is kind of our major goal. And we're very happy to take that on. Uh, it's been the least advanced SDG from all of them. It's received only like 13 or 14% uh, of, of, its, of its targets uh, to date. And that's one that we're definitely taking into consideration with increased biodiversity and contribution to water clarity and, and the rest. Another goal is climate action, which uh, we are taking on from both uh, mitigation and adaptation perspective. Uh, we're also contributing to uh, 
the, the target of responsible consumption and production. Uh, I didn't mention, but our admix component, kind of our secret sauce, is made nearly entirely of byproducts. And also when we are producing our molds, for example, we're taking care of having as much as we can separate materials and uh, less you know, highly composite so that we can do uh, circular economy components. Sustainable cities, think about waterfronts that have much more life and much more community engagement. And finally, I think even um, education. Uh, a lot of the things that we do are public spaces and we want to educate people about the importance of uh, marine life and, and uh, resiliency and biodiversity. And we do quite a lot of engagement with communities, with schools, with local NGOs uh, to, to kind of adhere to that. And maybe finally, last but not least, uh, I think that uh, gender equality, uh, having a, a company that's woman-led, and we, we just see it as an equal uh, opportunity company, two co-founders, one male, one female, no differences, it shouldn't be that way. I read this nice quote by Arthur C. Clarke. He said, how inappropriate to call this planet Earth when it's quite clearly an ocean. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting uh, way of saying that 70% of our planet is actually water. Can you elaborate a little bit for me, like why this SDG of life below water is so important? Yes, uh, unfortunately there's multiple problems. Uh, I think that a lot of people are now exposed and aware of some of the big problems like plastic pollution in our ocean and coral bleaching, ocean acidification. Uh, these are part of our problem. I think that loss of biodiversity and extinctions is another huge problem that uh, is not getting enough attention. And uh, in addition, the loss of habitat is not receiving enough attention to my uh, perspective, and especially when we're losing those habitats because of uh, human development and human uh, 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 cities and communities. And uh, these are some of the things that uh, needs to be taken care of. And um, it's inherent that we are considering these in any process that we're engaged in, if it's fishing, if it's uh, shipping, if it's uh, extraction of energy from the water. It, it looks like an infinite resource. It has been considered so for a long time. And unfortunately, when we got to the tilting point, when the oceans are no longer uh, steady and they're going into uh, phase shifts that are not uh, reversible, to, to a certain extent, that's when we woke up. Uh, it's, it's almost too late. Some scientists say it's too late. Some scientists say if we act now and scale our, our approaches, it's still there's still time. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, we're not trying to scare anybody. We're just trying to drive people to action. And I think education is an integral part of that. So um, when we're going to keep on and extracting the resources from our oceans, we need to keep uh, building them as well. Uh, otherwise, we will just be shooting ourselves in the foot. And uh, uh, I'm hopeful uh, that, uh, first of all, that science will help here. And I think that there's a more and more applied science uh, being engaged for that perspective. Uh, I'm also hopeful that there are, you know, the process of natural selection will still help us, even though we're kind of accelerating the, the rate of change, which is not very much in line with natural succession, uh, but I don't know I was I was diving in, in Egypt last year in Sinai in places that I dove in 20 years ago and I was afraid to go there uh, I was afraid to find uh, horrible devastated reefs and actually it was amazing 
So maybe because of having the, the diving industry, for example, in that region a little bit down all these years because of political issues probably, uh, the reefs are doing well. And even though it was 30 degrees Celsius in 30 meters of water, which is insane, the reef was amazing. The urgency of addressing our global problems and slowing down climate change cannot be overstated. One of the reasons I make this podcast with Impossible is to show everyone how people all over the world are using their expertise to put the planet first. Positive stories work, but to move from an idea to concrete action, tools and methodologies can help. And that's why Impossible has developed what they call planet-centric design methodology. It's for anyone who is setting up or wanting to redesign a project to have positive impact on our planet and society. It's free to download from their site. Just go to impossible.com or follow the link in the bio. In the meantime, listen on as I ask Shimrit to tell me where her passion for the sea and her vocation came from. Yeah, so I felt very curious and uh, I, I felt like instead of looking at the coastline as the end of the city, it's actually the beginning of, of uh, a beautiful uh, place that... Uh, we don't know enough about, and that's what drove me to explore. Uh, for me, it's almost like the closest thing to outer space. Imagine we're putting on dive suits and we're going down and we need to use tanks to breathe. It's as close to going to the moon or something. And there's still so much to explore. So I, I realized, I think only when I was 30, that when I was 16, 17 and doing my high school project on uh, biology, because I took biology in high school, it was on the breakwaters of Tel Aviv. And I remember taking marine snails, uh, limpets, taking them home and playing with experiments on gravitation and uh, uh, phototaxis. And uh, uh, I guess that, that stuck in me. And uh, as soon as I finished the military service, which in Israel is mandatory, uh, for women as well. So I, I immediately went and took a dive course and I've been re really diving ever since. And um, I was also very fortunate to have uh, a lot of experience in different countries throughout uh, my academic and my professional career. I've, I think I've dove in over 30 countries now and I've seen places, especially I think around Africa that I believe have hardly seen other people. I mean, uh, I wouldn't compare myself to any, you know, to Jacques Cousteau or uh, Charlie Varon, which is kind of the guru of coral reefs. Uh, but I, for me, I'm content. I mean, I've had a really good share of experience and uh, I'm keen on keep on exploring and diving in places other than piers and ports. <laughs> if you look over at your path uh, to getting to where you are now, um, can you t can you think about what are the moments that were pivotal or like uh, that are really important to you? Um, definitely uh, meeting my co-founder uh, was a pivotal moment and the synergy between us. Uh, we both remember the night we were in Africa on a on a boat uh, doing the night shift on, on watching the the dive gear and everything. And that's where we came up with the concept of uh, how can we work on seascape architecture, basically, how can we make that change? So that, that was a moment that I distinctly remember that we, we decided to, to go for this as, as a future um, mission. Uh, and um, I think there are moments along the way. I mean, the first time that you see an installation of the product and uh, um, 
I remember just recently seeing some some children uh, with a bucket uh, collecting crabs off of our uh, tide pools in the coastline here in Tel Aviv. And they could have gone on the rocks around it, but no, they were on our product and that's where the uh, crabs were. So that for me was uh, a, a small big success and uh, I hope to see that uh, scale. I can imagine being like quite a... a... Emotional might be too much, but it's an endearing uh, image of like uh, as kids. Yeah, it's like it's working. Uh, it was almost the same uh, when we deployed the first armor blocks, which is like it's a huge chunk of concrete. And uh, we designed different uh, sizes of, of holes to accommodate for different fish. And like the, the, even before it had any significant uh, life on the concrete, uh, the fish came to the holes. And every fish had a hole. And that was another thing that we felt like, yeah, we're doing something right here. <laughs> I came across Shimrit and her project through a friend at the Biomimicry Institute. E-Concrete won the Ray of Hope Prize in August 2020, honoring them for the way they have mimicked nature in their solutions for our planet. I asked Shimrit to tell me how they used biomimicry and why it's important to them when looking toward the future. So I think we didn't even really look at the at the actual definition of biomimicry. We just acted upon it, I think, for many years until we, we really met the Biomimicry Institute. And uh, we're so grateful to have won uh, the Ray of Hope Prize, uh, which is uh, basically honoring the, the life's works of, of uh, uh, Ray Anderson uh, for his, his biomimetic work. Uh, and uh, the, the concept of biomimicry is really uh, looking at how nature does it. So what are uh, nature's way from our perspective of defending our coastlines? And uh, these are mangrove uh, beds, these are uh, oyster reefs, these are coral reefs, and uh, we're looking for inspiration from those ecosystems and we're kind of translating them uh, to a commercial product. Uh, and for e-concrete, we do that uh, biomimicry kind of envelope on, on multiple layers of the technology. So from a material perspective, we had to use uh, an additive that helps the concrete be more benign, more like a natural uh, composition. Uh, from a surface texture perspective, again, we draw inspiration from features like oysters and, and, and corals uh, at the micro level. And at the macro level, we are striving to mimic uh, ecosystem functions. So we're looking at how nature does it. We're translating it to uh, an applied technology uh, that will keep in tune with nature. So that's biomimicry for us, basically. Great. I, there's a, there's a, for everyone who's interested, there's so much out there on uh, concrete. And one of the things I read was indeed that concrete has been humans' um, way to kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, shield itself from nature? <laughs> But that actually after a while, it actually makes all this climate change, it amplifies it. So because it, it, it creates heat pools in cities and like a, um, it can't soak up the rain and stuff. And I think that here I might add a point. I wish we didn't have to use concrete. And it's funny for me to say that. And I hope my board of directors doesn't kill me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sell my product. I, I want people to move away from the oceans and to uh, let for natural realignment to occur. And I wish we could have only used nature-based uh, solutions and living shorelines. The problem is that it's not feasible, it's not practical, 
And we feel comfortable saying that only when all of those options have been exhausted and there's been kind of an executive decision by engineers or product developers that we have to build concrete structures here, that's where it has to be with environmentally sensitive and nature-inclusive technologies like ours uh, so that we make sure that we do have ecosystem functions and biodiversity when we are doing hard coastal defenses. So that's kind of something that we always say on every presentation that we're doing that uh, I don't want to say we're the last resort, but uh, definitely we would love everybody to explore alternatives before going into any hard armor. Yeah, thanks. It's like the vision behind the vision. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, we need to really look at natural products again. Yeah, This is a good step in the right direction. So why did you start a company? Why not uh, something else? What is the what is the benefit of actually being in business? We we felt like it's our way to um, to really make an impact. Uh, If it were to have stayed in academia, it might have been. studied to death, as we say. I mean, we, we probably would have been stuck with a uh, uh, different level of optimization and uh, uh, statistical analysis. We wanted to make this uh, impactful and wanted to step out of that uh, kind of comfort zone for us of, of doing just science. And we keep doing science wherever we go, but we also implement. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I'd say, why aren't we uh, an NGO or something like a nonprofit? Uh, again, some of these processes that we're doing to accelerate uh, the applied science require funding that's not always uh, available unless you go to kind of a, a venture-backed uh, corporate structure. Yeah, and I mean, your project is so huge and the, probably the space you even need to just uh, make your product is like a, a big. What kind of investors are we talking about? What kind of um, buyers uh, are you in talks with and investors? Well, we started we started off with angel investors that are still with us, and we really appreciate their their ongoing support. Uh, and then we moved to uh, impact investors, uh, which backed us up since probably 2017-18. And just now in our current round, uh, Bridges Israel, which is a part of Bridges International, one of very strong impact investment uh, venture capital firms, is uh, leading our round. Uh, it also helps us uh, quantify our impact. It helps us uh, stay with those goals of uh, having impact uh, criteria, uh, an integral part of our DNA. Uh, but we're also now getting additional investments. Uh, we've had investment through our ReLab, which is kind of a, a prop tech or a real estate tech incubator that helps us go into that space. Uh, we now just uh, had an additional investment from uh, a construction company that has a venture arm called Chibumi. Uh, so we're looking at the blend of strategic and impact investment. And uh, who knows in the future uh, where we'll go. I, I can see some uh, potential investments coming from uh, uh, CVCs, corporate VCs, uh, because some of those big corporates out there uh, that need us could have a very good alignment uh, even taking a stake in the company. So you're now talking about investors, but if, for example, the Port of Rotterdam or San Diego, they are your buyers, but are they also in some way investors or co-creators or how does it work with the supply chain? No, so they're basically different levels of uh, customers for us. Uh, the, the, the port industry is a very big um, uh, client or, or 
let's say, segment of the market for us, because obviously there's a lot of commercial ports, uh, but we are also engaged in other segments uh, like the offshore wind arena. Um, our go-to market is quite um, elaborate, as you understand. It's it's a challenging business. Uh, what can I say? Typically, the, the, the entity that buys our technology and uses it to do the casting work is a concrete manufacturer. We don't pitch to them. They just adhere to the standards and to the specifications of the project. Uh, we have to talk to the uh, engineers, design-build firms, landscape architects, project managers, uh, the owners of the properties, which can be the port or the city, uh, and we have to sell them the concept so that they request it as a part of their project and it will actually adhere to the technical specifications of the project that will be adopted by the concrete manufacturer. So it's quite a long process. Uh, there's a lot of different stakeholders engaged. There's layers of consultants along the way, and we're taking the time to educate all of them. It just feels like it's the wrong way around, that you have to sell a good uh, product to all these people, while, while actually, if it was required that people used better concrete, then they would find you. What kind of people do you surround yourself with to build this company? What kind of um, mindsets do they have or, or, or skills, talents? So I'll, I'll actually start with my co-founder. Uh, I didn't mention his name. His name is Ido Sela. Uh, both of us are PhDs in marine ecology. So he's kind of my half brain. Uh, we, we kind of say that we share a brain. Uh, I do a lot of the business development, networking, uh around the sales process and he's more of the technical person he's working on the product development r&d etc uh, and then we have a super diverse team in-house so we have biologists ecologists uh, coastal and marine engineers concrete technologists product designers industrial designers all amazing team and then obviously we have uh, some professionals around uh, marketing and uh, and sales uh, apart from that, we try to tap into expertise of uh, uh, various strategic consultants, obviously. Um, and we use our board of directors and sometimes our investors as a sounding board to any kind of business decision. So it's, it's kind of a, a group effort. Um, and as I mentioned, with respect to partnerships and a little bit of uh, higher level works going into lobbying, etc., sometimes we just use uh, professional firms. Uh, to support that. And uh, I think partnerships uh, is, is something that uh, is inherent for us. I hear continuous learning or maybe uncertainty with the people that work for you. Do they have a certain mindset? Is it um, purpose-driven? I think that we are very much um, multidisciplinary people uh, and out-of-the-box type of thinkers. And we love to collaborate. Uh, that That's uh, a very... Um, core to our kind of DNA of the company, uh, curiosity, and uh, I think it comes to um, effect also in the, in the IP that we, we produce. Uh, we come up with crazy, you know, uh, innovation around mold systems and uh, concrete, obviously, which is not our core expertise because we, we just want to solve problems and we want to do it in a way that's practical. Can you give me one thing that you're dealing with right now that is like a unresolved or you don't really know how to move forward or you are um, something that's unresolved? It's a, one of our barriers at the moment is uh, to get a more uh, quantifiable return on investment on the technology. 
um, we are very clear on the biological added value. We can quantify easily. Uh, but at the moment, uh, the industry and the policies are not very much aligned with giving that uh, a money tag. So how much uh, more would you pay to double the biodiversity? If nobody is asking you to do that, you might say, I don't want to spend even a cent more on biodiversity, and it shouldn't be that way. So now one of our challenges is to, to uh, use different tools and uh, hopefully to drive these processes also onwards to give uh, the kind of the monetary value for uh, the impact that we're providing uh, and do that at multiple levels. So first on the biological and ecological impacts and then also on the strength. One of the challenges that we have is to quantify how much, let's say, longevity we're going to gain because of the uh, higher performance of uh, the concrete that we are manufacturing and potentially how less maintenance we will have. So these are things that take time to quantify. That's, uh, that's something that's unresolved. Uh, we give assumptions and projections, but it's not based on data because we don't have a 30-year-old e-concrete breakwater to show that you pay less to maintain it. And uh, it's, it's quite essential to our uh, offering, to our value proposition, and we can explain it. But uh, I think that until we have uh, a little bit more acceptance from uh, the, the market to the fact that we do need to give a price tag to these things like carbon. You know, if you, if you would talk about 10 years ago about carbon and uh, the value of carbon offsetting, it was miles away from what we, what we have today with calculators. So I want to have biodiversity calculators that will be a clear ROI for any project and will make these technologies uh, a no-brainer, you know. You, you just couldn't do something without taking that into consideration. My last question before I ask another guest is, what, what is one belief that you hold true that if it turned out to be untrue, would render your work irrelevant? <laughs> Maybe it's a matter of, of, uh, of time scale. I mean, are we looking at these things at the right time scale? And uh, are we worried about our impact rightfully? Uh, maybe if we would have been looking at this at, uh, at, at a different scale of uh, millennia, uh, we would say we're just a blimp and uh, why worry? <laughs> uh, I don't believe that, but that would definitely change my perspective. So, um, My previous guest was Melanie Ryback. She's writing a book on post-growth entrepreneurship. Um, and her question was, um, what are three books that have influenced you most? I, I don't think my answer would be that um, um, in, in line with uh, the messages that I'm giving because uh, as a child, I always uh, read uh, science fiction, uh, but maybe that opened my imagination. So uh, I think uh, like The Hobbit was probably one of my favorites growing up. Uh, as an adult, uh, I think uh, it, it's, it's a little bit more technical books. Uh, it sounds funny, but uh, The Coral Taxonomy was something. Uh, it's, it's a book by Charlie Varen called Reticulate Evolution that talks about genetic pathways in coral reefs, which uh, I found really inspirational. And I, I would mention, finally, a book that was just, uh, um, was just published uh, by Vital Voices, uh, Elise Nelson, who's uh, a good friend, uh, called 100 Women with the Power to Empower. 
and I'm very, I'm so proud and humbled to be a part of that list. So I have uh, one page on, on my work in there with many amazing other uh, inspirational women. And I, uh, I would encourage all of you to go ahead and, and buy the book, which is a donation as well. And there's a lot of uh, uh, women that have done exceptional uh, work around um, victims uh, across the globe, women victims and, and just women power. So that's kind of two books that come into mind. Thank you. I think there's something in there for everyone. Um, yeah, it's your turn to ask a question. Do you have a question for my next guest? What would the future look like post-COVID with respect to uh, kind of the, the, the interface between uh, humans and uh, the urban environment? Um, I've been feeling that we've had a kind of a gradual change with how we perceive our uh, living space and our cities and the natural uh, environment and the urban environment. So I think a good question would be how, how do we see ourselves post-COVID, any major changes to uh, the way we live? I like the idea of gradual change that we can't perceive, but I also sense that there's definitely a, a change. Thanks so much for taking the time today. It was really nice to get to know you better and also your, um, your um, mission through eConcrete. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for all the listeners. Uh, hopefully uh, uh, I gave you some food for thought. This episode is just one of many interviews recorded for this podcast series. Go to whatifwegetitright.com to hear more stories from people around the world who are putting the health of the planet at the center of their business. If you're ready to move forward your own idea, you can download a planet-centric design toolkit at impossible.com.